I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Leah Vincent is a former Orthodox Jew and the author of Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. She's the first person in her family to attend college, and she earned her master's degree in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Leah, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess let's just start with your story. What, uh, what's your background? You grew up Orthodox and then you broke free, obviously, is a reductive way to say it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a really concise way to tell the story. <laughs> yeah, um, I grew up in a very, uh, in a specific sect within the ultra-Orthodox community called the Yeshivish community. My dad is a really prominent rabbi. Uh, big family, you know, super religious. And yeah, in my adolescence, I started to question things, push back on things. And I actually, I didn't break free as much as was thrown out. Um, yeah. What were some of the triggers that made you rethink this environment you were brought up in? Um, I, you know, to, to be totally honest, I wasn't rethinking the environment as much as having problems with small pieces of the environment. Um, so one of the big ones was that, you know, racism was very accepted in my, at least the culture that was around me. And because I, I was actually a very devout child and to me that just didn't jive with my idea of, you know, a loving God that we could talk about God's creations in, uh, in, in a way that was offensive. And when I questioned that, I got a lot of pushback, like, how dare you question the way things are done? Um, and one of the other big things that happened was that, you know, I loved my father very much. He was this holy man who talked to God. And uh, as I got older, I realized that because I was a girl, I wasn't going to be able to be as close to him. And my older sisters were getting married and bringing home their husbands, and they were engaging my dad in these Talmudic debates that I wasn't allowed to be a part of. And it was very painful for me. And I think that pain started to generate some questions and, and sort of a rebelliousness, maybe. Let me let me go back to the, the racism issue issue for just a second. When you are growing up in that culture and, you know, that racism is presumably all around you, how do you even know that that's not a good thing? How do you even know to question that? Is someone are you finding out somewhere else like, oh, you're not supposed to be racist or is this something <laughs> you're just figuring out on your own somehow? Well, I had some exposure to people who were just sort of mainstream Orthodox, which was miles away from the kind of Orthodox we were. So I, I understood the concept of racism, but my pushback didn't come from that. It really came from this place of being so devout. I mean, I was such a believer as a child. And I just thought like, you know, I, I had learned a lot about the Holocaust and persecution of the Jews and, and this idea that God created everybody. And I thought like how, the way people are talking about African-Americans, it sounded to me like like anti-Semitism, like there was a lot of commonality and it just was confusing to me. And I thought, these are people God created. How can we talk about them like that? Where does that even stem from? The the racism <laughs> toward African-Americans? Like what, on what basis are people doing that? Um, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting. My grandfather is an Orthodox rabbi and he actually um, marched with civil rights leaders in the 60s. Oh, wow. And so ultra-Orthodoxy is a new invention of the past 40 years and it's very different than 
the place, it, the religion or the faith it comes from. I think part of it is just a general conservative, you know, Rush Limbaugh kind of attitude. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's sort of where the politics lie. And then I think that coupled with a very toxic attitude towards any outsider mm. as being less than, you know, less than them, I think creates that kind of environment. That seems like a really perceptive observation for, you know, a young child to make is to connect you know, the Holocaust with the, you know, the racism that's still going on today and in the last um, few few decades. Did you feel like you were the only one who's connecting those dots? Did you ever talk to it, talk about it with your peers or your sisters? Or was it something in, kind of you kept inside? Well, I talked about it. And that's actually why it became a really big problem. Because half the problem was that I was kind of uncomfortable with how people were talking about these other human beings. But another really significant part was the reaction I got. So, you know, my dad would use this derogatory word to refer to African-Americans, this Yiddish word. And I would say, like, I just, you know, respectfully, like, I don't, I just don't understand why you're saying that it feels offensive. And I got so much um, distaste and disdain that, like, how dare I question things. And that was really the only reception I got to my, my questioning and my discomfort with this. And that really fueled this rebelliousness or whatever you want to call it further because I was like wait I'm, I'm trying to stand up for God and for good things and you're telling me that I'm bad and, and chutzpahdik and you know like acting inappropriately for doing that and that was really troubling to me. And we hear that from a lot of religious people too where you know if they have questions about their faith raising the question is kind of offensive oh, yeah. and the que- the response they get back is you, you shouldn't be asking that sort of a question. And that's across all religions. Yeah we've... across all religions yeah. And of course, that's kind of the way they end up. Uh, like ending up said, on our rebelling. show. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, when you were still devout? What did you think your future was going to look like? I was going to get married by the time I was eighteen hmm. to a nice Talmudic scholar, um, and that my parents would help me choose, and I would move to Lakewood, New Jersey, which is the center of my subsect, and my husband would learn Talmud all day and I would get a job as a secretary or Hebrew school teacher and have a child every year and a half for the foreseeable future. Um, I would serve my husband and serve my children and that would be my life. Just out of a practical concern, how did they make money when they do that? If he's learning the Talmud 24-7. Yeah, is that the only income coming in? Is that the only income? For a lot of them, yeah. A lot of them live in in pretty shocking poverty with so many kids and not a lot of money. So when you were a young child, you said you were so devout, were you looking forward to this life or was it always something that was scary or intimidating or not desirable for you? I was very excited about that future. It's all I wanted. And, you know, I mentioned I was thrown out of the community and as opposed to walked out. And for years after I was thrown out, I still desperately wanted to find a way to get back to that future. It was very hard for me to imagine any other kind of future for myself. And how old were you when you got thrown out? Uh, about 16, 17. Where'd, where, where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was a bit of a process. So the final break happened when I was in a sort of finishing school on my own in Israel. I was 16 years old. So I was living in a dormitory. So I had a roof over my head and I was attending this this religious college and my parents cut off their financial support. And then at the, I was there for a year. At the end of that year, I found myself in New York. And my, I don't, I'm not from New York originally, so I was on my own. And I just got a job and started paying rent and, and just kind of tried to paddle to keep my head above water. Is this something that is common for a lot of other women who are leaving uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism? 
The experiences vary. You know, there are some people who come, you know, get loving parents who support them, you know, no matter what choices they make. That's rare. It's not uncommon for people who are questioning and quote unquote acting out to be thrown out without any concern for the repercussions of that. So how did you, so growing up, it was the understanding that you're never going to be educated. That was not going to be a part of your world. How did you go from that to, like, where'd your education start in earnest? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I got a decent elementary school and high school education, particularly girls get a good education because they're expected to go on and become the secretaries who support the families. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that was one of the big rebellions, you know, after the stuff I mentioned to you, the next stage was that I... I developed a crush on a boy, which was, of course, was forbidden. And he was religious, but also not as religious as my family. And he was going to college. And so I started to think, you know, maybe I want to go to college. Um, and then when I told my, my mom that, actually, she had a really strong reaction. We had a fight about it. She threatened to have me locked up if I tried to go, which, of course, only made me more interested in going. Right. Um, what, yeah. What, what exactly is the, the religious objection to women getting a more formal higher education? The objection that my parents and their peers have is that you're in a secular environment, you're exposed to secular ideas, you're in a co-educational environment. There are some even ultra-Orthodox colleges teaching secular subjects now, but even those for my family weren't good enough. There was no reason for me to waste time busy with stupidities like that when I, all I needed to know how to do was type and you know cook dinner. That seems so interesting because if, if you're going to be the breadwinner, it would make sense for them to say, well, get a better education, get a better job, make more money. Yeah. But is, I guess that's not. If you're going to be a secretary, priority. though, it, this sounds like one of those professions that is slowly kind of getting phased out, though. Like mm-hmm. there's less of a need for the more. Well, it's receptionist. Reception- now, so. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, no, I know exactly. Yes. Uh, so you would think like, oh, well, maybe you should learn a little bit of coding for a computer. Right. I mean, that would actually. <laughs> and you be... can work out of home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, is that shift happening within the community at all that? I mean, at some point, you got to catch up with what's going on outside of this world. There's a little bit of a shift happening, definitely. Um, you know, I, I have five sisters, and so one of them is a graphic designer, and one of them is kind of like a businesswoman, self-made, and one of them is an executive assistant. So, and, and there's a little bit more openness to certain kinds of careers and certain kinds of education than there was when I was growing up. I'm 33 now, so this is some, you know, 20 years ago. So there has been some shift. Are your sisters still in the... Um... Uh, with your with the uh, with the ultra orthodox culture, yeah, I, yeah, I have ten brothers and sisters, and nine Jeez. of them, all of my sisters, and four of my brothers are still there. I have one brother who, years after I left, also left. So let's talk about the other siblings first. What's your mm-hmm. communication like with them now? Um, almost non-existent with most of them, especially because I wrote a book, which, you know, they are really, in general, that community really hates that kind of thing. And so it was that what you mean? Yeah, and, and they, they don't think that people should air dirty laundry. And, mm. you know, of course, they think I'm a pathological liar and making up everything. And so it makes it even worse. They refuse to, you know, whatever. <laughs> they have a lot of issues with people telling their truth. Um yeah, and I mean, I didn't have a relationship with most of them since I was a teenager. And then once I wrote the book, it was kind of all over. Um, yeah, they just, we our lives are just too different and they find my life too offensive. Is that the case with your parents as well? Yeah, um, yes. I mean, you know, I've made a number of attempts to reconcile with them. and But at this point, it's it's not really existent. 
So what happened with your brother? Does he have a similar story in the sense that he slowly, he was thrown out as well and you guys were able to connect back? Um, I don't like to tell his story too much. Sure. I'm happy to always answer any question about my own. Sure, sure. But, but I can say that, you know, he didn't leave until a number of years after I left. And when he was going through the hardest part of his journey, we weren't connected because he had been raised on these stories that he had this older sister who was possessed by a demon and mentally unstable and a pathological liar. So as he was struggling with his questions, he didn't think of me as a resource. He thought of me as a scary, toxic you know, monster. Um, so we only really, and also, you know, we didn't know each other. I had, you know, he's like, I don't know how many years younger than me, maybe eight years younger than me. So we kind of, you know, by the time he was old enough to be aware of the world, I was already out of the house. Um, so we didn't really connect until he kind of really got on his feet, which took him a while as well. It's interesting. The story that you're saying with your brother too, it's very similar to a story that we've heard with people who've come out of Westboro Baptist Church, where Mm -hmm. they left this very fundamentalist type of religion, Mm -hmm. and the kids who are still in that environment are told horror stories about the people who left. But after they leave, they reconnect and they realize, like, they just, they find, they join forces again in the outside world, it seems. Yeah, which is, I mean, such a beautiful and amazing thing. But, I, you know, I want to say you're drawing this commonality between these two communities that may on the surface seem very different, but I think that um, as I observe the world, that there's so much more in common between fundamentalist faiths than between a fundamentalist faith and its more moderate version. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think we, we've seen that time and time again, whether it's with um, the Mormon church, whether it's with Baptists, anybody who's fundamentalist, it's very separationist. It's very, you can't be aware of If you leave this culture, we're done with you. Yeah. We're disowning yeah. you, that sort of thing. Um, how, what are you going to teach... Uh, you said you have a daughter, correct? Mm-hmm, I do. What are you going to teach your daughter about the culture you grew up in when she's old enough to understand? We already started some conversations in the past few weeks because um, I'm very open with her about everything. And she's almost four years old. So questions come up. Yeah. And, you know, I, I try to be honest with her about the realities. I try to tell her. I mean, what I actually told her was there are some people who are religious. Her her grandparents on her other side are also ultra-Orthodox and she has contact with them. And so I told her what I believe, which is that life can be very scary. And some people like to believe this story that isn't true, that makes life easier to bear. And, you know, there's some things about their life that are different than our life. Like they get to do some fun rituals, but the boys make up all the rules and girls don't get to make up any rules. When you put it that way, you just realize how ridiculous it is. Um, so that we start to have those kinds of conversations. So um, obviously you've left the ultra-Orthodox uh, sort of beliefs behind. Have you swung all the way? Do you consider yourself an atheist or are you somewhere in between still? I'm definitely an atheist. And so what? So obviously you got kind of thrown out of your, your uh, religion, not of your own volition. What was that path for you like to get all the way to like, oh, wait, this isn't real? We're not just like totally fundamentalist, but I think this is just all oh, totally wrong. Yeah. yeah. It, the spiritual journey took a long time. Um, I, I, God was so important to me. It would, it was just too traumatic to let go of him as well. You know, I had just lost my family in particular. Sure. Um, so first, you know, I still practiced Judaism for a while. And then when I started to realize there were just too many holes in that theory and there were no place, there was no place for me. I started exploring other faiths. Um, I explored Buddhism and found a lot of really helpful things there. I became a Sufi, a dervish for a short while. 
Um, and then I discovered science. And um, the amazing thing about science is that it's gorgeous. I mean, there's no, there's no, I mean, I love myth and I love story, but there's nothing as beautiful to me as, as the stories of the natural world. And so that kind of met that need that I have to believe in something bigger than myself. Can you walk me through, I mean, we mentioned up front that uh, you did public policy, you got your master's at Harvard uh, Kennedy School. How do you go, I mean, that's an impressive feat for anybody. How do you go from getting this, you know, like you said, decent high school education? There's still a huge gap there between being ready to tackle something that uh, rigorous, you know what I mean? Uh, So what was your educational path to go from something that, I don't know, from this decent high school, but still within that Orthodox community to something that's hard for people who go to, I don't know, ridiculously expensive with the full support of their parents, with the support of their parents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was an educational leap and even bigger was a psychological leap. And I mean, the the psychological evolution that has to happen when you leave fundamentalist religion just can not be described because it's so great. Um, so basically the first thing was getting to college in the first place. And that to me was so overwhelming. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And then finally I did figure out how to do it. And, and, and that in itself was super overwhelming to like show up on the first day and think of myself as a college student. I went to school as a night and weekend student because I was working full time to support myself. And I was driven by the fact that my family was treating me so harshly because even though I wasn't really talking to them most of the time, their voices lived on in my head and I needed to combat that. And in college, you know, I, I got a really positive response from my professors. I found out for the first time in my life that I was intelligent. Like I, I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't known that that hadn't like entered my That wasn't radar. one of the compliments you received growing up? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. And, you know, so then I was like, okay, you know, one of my professors was encouraging me to think about graduate school. And I was like, ah, I can't go to graduate school. Who am I? And he was really encouraging me to think about it. And I said, okay, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to like do it big and I'm going to try the most impossible thing. And to me, you know, even as an ultra-Orthodox kid, I knew about Harvard. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't like a, a well-thought-out academic decision. It was just like, <laughs> this is this is the biggest thing I can think of. Yeah. Um, and I just worked my butt off and, and did the things that I had to do to make it happen. What surprised you about college? You might have had this conception of what it would be like, even when you stepped outside the the Orthodox world. But what surprised you when you were actually on campus, even undergrad? Just the wealth of information and knowledge that there is in the world. I mean, that really blew me away. I was raised to believe that, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews have a monopoly on wisdom. And to realize, like, how much brilliance there is, how many perspectives there are. It was just so beautiful. I, I remember very vividly that first semester and just feeling like I was just bathed in, in knowledge. It was incredibly exciting. So what would you, if, if you could talk to your 16-year-old self, what would you say? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say, you know, I would probably talk about about autonomy and, and you know, that I would probably want to tell my 16-year-old self that men are not the deciders of my internal reality, which was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And I learned it very painfully. Um, you know, I, I'd been raised to just serve men and, and to assume that whatever men, the men around me wanted was more important than anything I ever could think of. And that got me into a lot of trouble. And so I I would want to somehow, I don't, I think it's a hard thing to know how to articulate, but just to say like, you know, this is your life and you just have to do what makes sense for you and don't try to make you know, don't try to live to make some man happy. It's not 
a recipe for success or happiness. Was there a moment that made you kind of come to that, like, I have autonomy over me? Or was it a couple of years of living on your own and making your own decisions and realizing you can do it? It was a lot. I mean, in that particular arena, it, it, there were, it was a lot of years. You know, I had a, I had a lot of trauma in that, um, you know, being, being having that kind of perspective and being thrown in the middle of New York City as a 17-year-old, very naive girl, yeah. um, is sort of a recipe for disaster. And so because I encountered trauma right away, that just kind of set me on the spiral of, of not being able to learn because I was just kind of lost and broken with all that trauma. So it took a long time for me to, you know, stop being in, in disastrous relationships and start to realize, like, this is my life. So sure. it took many, many years. It was... Um, it was, it's, it's a pretty hard lesson to learn. I mean, some things are hard, like, you know, going to college or eating a cheeseburger, but the psychological <laughs> rewiring of one's own brain, you know, that, that's kind of like a self-surgery. That's, it's, it's really, really difficult and it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Do you think it's easier for uh, kids who are leaving that culture now than it was when you left? I like, was what literally re- writing down this Look question that. right now. <laughs> what are the resources? What are the resources people have now that you didn't have? Oh, it's definitely, definitely easier for two reasons. One is the internet. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be alone. And that, you know, you know, I went through hell, I, you know, all kinds of hell, but the loneliness was really the worst. And so you can get online and you can connect with people. Um, so that's thing number one. And thing number two is that there's an organization now that is dedicated to helping people who leave. And that's changing the journey dramatically. It's called Footsteps. And it wasn't around when I went through what I went through. But now if you leave and you know about Footsteps, you can get every kind of help and support you need to make the journey a lot less painful. And that's specifically for ultra-Orthodox? or is yes. it for any? Okay. Um, what specific stories have you heard? Because uh, we spoke recently with Shulam Dean as well, who is yeah. also working with Footsteps. What yes. sort of resources does that organization provide people who are leaving the movement now? They offer a lot of pragmatic help. So they'll offer educational scholarships and informational sessions on relationships and navigating the outside world. You know, if you try to leave, I mean, I'm, you may have spoken to Shulam about this. If you try to leave with kids, you know, the community will often try to take your children. So now they offer legal assistance. Um, but I think that the most valuable thing they offer is community. And to go through, go to an organization, know there are other people who understand where you come from and what you're going through. I think that's so huge. You know, people who understand what you're struggling with and, and can help guide I do about those sort of things that feel really shameful to talk about with other people. I think that's incredibly valuable. In your own experiences, um, would you say most people, so obviously people who leave the church or are kind of excommunicated leave that ortho, ultra orthodoxy behind, do you find most people, many people in your position lose their faith altogether or do they still kind of cling to maybe a more liberal form of, of Judaism? Um, I think there's a pretty high percentage of atheists in the community of people who leave, but there's also, particularly in the past few years, like a desire to hold on to some kind of cultural Judaism and not like Woody Allen and Bagels and Locks cultural Judaism, (laughs) but like, but like some aspect of our childhoods that is cultural, not religious. So a lot of us still listen to the music we grew up with. You know, I think like it's really, um, it's really bad for the brain to slice off the person you used to be and have nothing to do with it anymore. And sure. I think we're kind of realizing that and saying like, okay, is there something cultural that we can take with us that will provide some comfort and some link to our childhoods without us having to, you know, buy all the garbage. Right. And like you said to your daughter, there's kind of fun and satisfying and comforting rituals to it. And mm-hmm. I'm sh- there's, I don't know, rituals are there for a reason. Yes. 
Exactly. Every now and then, uh, I will come across stories about Orthodox Judaism, whether it's uh, on a radio show or uh, an article about it. Whenever you see these articles about your community that you grew up with, what do they get wrong about it? Um, it depends who's writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of times you get like the basic details wrong and there's confusion about, you know, who there's so many different sub communities and people don't realize that. And so they'll have somebody from one sub community defending the practices of another sub community. And so that kind of doesn't really present a clear picture, a clear argument. But I think one of the big things that people get wrong is like the lack of nuance and conversation about this community or really any fundamentalist community. So you'll have an article that's either super um, critical or super romanticizing and not really understanding like what actually is going on, what purposes do these insanities serve? And, you know, like I, I feel like I would love journalism to be a little bit more nuanced in how they describe these things. In your work with Footsteps, I don't know if you have any statistics on the numbers like do you know how many people are reaching out to footsteps for help has it gotten uh is it more people over the years or even men versus women who are yeah. reaching out i'd be interested in that um i don't have the numbers at my at my fingertips although i know they keep track of it there's definitely an ever-increasing rise i think initially if i remember correctly it was initially much more men than women and that gender balance is starting to even out men have an easier time bridging the gap to the secular world often initially than women do, at least in the past. Which I think that's interesting because men don't have any formal education in terms of secular education in general. Is that right? Often, yes. But the the big difference is the hierarchy of sins. And for a girl to act in a way that's immodest is it will ruin her, Mm. you know, and so there's no clemency. There's no and there's no flexibility and there's not a lot of flexibility for men but if a man messes up and like is seen going into a bar or even has a relationship with a girl or something like that he could be forgiven it's not inconceivable because that's not his main focus so would you say there's more emotional challenges for women but maybe some really logistical challenges for men coming into the secular world would that be a fair statement it might be. It's hard to say because there's so much suffering for both sure, men and no, women. Yeah. Obviously, but it's I think not a there contest. might be some truth, right? <laughs> but, the, but, 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 yeah, I think there might be some truth to that. Are there pe- are the people who leave uh, ultra orthodox Judaism now? Are they leaving for the same reasons people uh, left a decade ago, or is it like now it's oh, I had access to the internet and I figured everything out, and that's why I'm leaving? Yeah. Versus what you described, which was much more of a self-reflective sort of thing. Mm. Have you noticed any difference about that? Um, it's hard to know because you know when I left, I didn't know anybody else who was leaving, so I don't really have any data to compare. Yeah. Uh, my anecdotal sort of sense is that the process happens much faster. So for me, it took many years for me to have this religious religious evolution to sort of come to my ideas. I think if I was hopping on the internet, you know, when I started, I would have, you know, come across a couple of forums talking about religion and faith, and I probably would have had much more access to the relevant ideas and probably would have reached sort of intellectual conclusions a lot faster. Sure, that makes sense. What what do you see happening with... Footsteps with the ultra-Orthodox community going forward. I mean, does the community have a much harder time now keeping people within the fold, or are they just going along the same as ever? I think the numbers of people leaving are increasing, um, but they have so many children that, you know, (laughs) they're just continued to grow. And, you know, the future of 
Judaism period in America definitely skews ultra-Orthodox. Um, I think in terms of the future of ultra-Orthodoxy, I think that there's going to be a split. I think that some people are going to say this is too much and they'll start to embrace this slightly more modern lifestyle. And I think another group of people will just go ever more fundamentalist. I mean, some of the very fringe groups, the women have started to adopt the burqa. Mm. Um, and I have a bet with my friends that in, in you know, <laughs> 20 years from now, 10% of the women are going to be wearing it because I think that's the nature of fundamentalism to just ever-increase intensity. Yeah, wow. kind of double down on its own, yeah. its own beliefs. Yeah, And what exactly. has the, uh, what reaction have you gotten from, uh, not within the community, but from people who have left it uh, to your book? Has it been, yes, this is very similar to my story or I totally get where you're coming from? Or has it been... Uh, no, this this is totally different from my own experience. I've got a lot of people saying I had very similar experiences, um, a lot, a staggering amount of people, which is very sad because it's a very sad story to, you know, hear, particularly, you know, my story is really about, you know, my coming to terms with my sexuality and, and a lot of, and the trauma that I endured because of, because I grew up in a very patriarchal society and a lot of women from every background, but particularly from ultra-Orthodox backgrounds say like, yeah, I was in, you know, similar circumstances. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, what you've been through with us because this, it's such a delicate topic and it's a tough one to discuss. So we really appreciate your uh, time. And uh, the book, again, is Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My Ultra-Orthodox ultra Girlhood. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.